Hello and welcome to another episode of Not a Dolphin. My name is Lauren, joining you once again, and today we have part two of a four-part series that's been created all about vaquita. And the reason we're doing this is because vaquita are the most endangered marine mammal on the planet. I had the opportunity to interview Dr. Lorenzo Rojas Bracho. He is a member of the National Commission of Protected Areas in Mexico, as well as the head of marine mammal conservation and research for the National Institute of Ecology and Climate Change in Mexico. It's a mouthful, and I'm so excited that we had the opportunity to sit down and chat with Lorenzo. Uh, he has had the opportunity to work with and study vaquita since the early 90s. He has a wealth of knowledge and I'm really excited to share it with you here today. So sit back, get comfortable. We're going to jump right in. Thanks so much for the invitation. I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you so much for meeting with us online and our uh, safe distance chatting here. Also, <laughs> you did say you're from Ensenada. Yeah, Ensenada in Baja California, Mexico. That's just a few hours from San Diego, California, too. So people know wh where I am, more or less. Um, so I wanted to, first of all, uh, ask you, Lorenzo, uh, how did you get the name Mr. Vaquita? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not so sure how that happened. Uh, <laughs> I guess I've been just working too many decades with Vaquita and trying to help uh, with Vaquita and other small cetaceans. I, I'm not so sure who started or how it went. I remember it was in a newspaper interview once. And okay, it a it's bit, a good a nickname. Bit, it was a bit of a surprise. <laughs> and so you say from, from decades of experience of working with Vaquita, so just how long have you been working to protect these animals? <laughs> oh, well, it's a bit painful to count backwards uh, but let's say I did my PhD. Okay, what was your PhD on? It was on oceanography, but I did risk factors affecting the vaquita that included a good bunch of uh, genetic research, uh, which I don't do anymore. And I got my degree in, well, 1998, probably. So I kind of started in 1995 or 93 or around those uh, uh, working on, on, on my thesis. And so you're looking at risk factors. What in 1993 were the risk factors then for vaquita? Well, the, the issue I think comes in uh, the 70s. Uh, Bob Brownell, who was part of my PhD committee, and he was the head of the Protected Species Division in, at the Southwest Fishery Science Center in La Jolla. He made a list of risk factors that could be affecting vaquita. I mean, that's the 70s. That's long, long, long ago. I mean, before I even thought of being a biologist, probably. And, uh, and he listed what he thought should be investigated. And among them was uh, the lack of flow of the Colorado River, pollution, uh, traffic, uh, gillnet, uh, fishing. And I can remember, I mean, it was a really long list of probably eight to 10 potential risk factors. Right. And among those risk factors, since I was inbreeding. Really? Yeah, it was just suspicion that, because at that time, I mean, there were many people who said that uh, vaquita was extinct. Even back in the 70s? Back in the 70s. If, uh, I remember a newspaper saying, if vaquita exists or something like, uh, like that. I tried to work on the genetics and see if there was... Uh, 
an issue about uh, vaquita inbreeding, and then we checked at pollution and uh, fisheries and the lack of flow of the Colorado River. And did you find... Yeah, we published that paper in 98 or so. And uh, after the risk factor analysis, we came to the conclusion that the factor that would be, could lead vaquita to, ex- to extinction was bycatch in gillnets. And there was no issues about pollution. It's, it, it's a very clean animal I mean, because there's no flow of the Colorado River. There's very few pollutants that get into the upper gulf. So right. it has one of the cleanest blubbers in the world. And just recently, together with Francis Gullen, we are going to... Well, it's in press now. It's a paper that deals specifically with uh, with pollution and how clean the vaquita is. And uh, then we published a paper on the genetics. It's not a risk factor. Vaquita has been surviving with low genetic variability for decades or, I mean, for thousands of years. So it's clean in the sense that there's no, it's not dumb to extinction because inbreeding or anything like that. I got very excited when he mentioned genetics, and I had lots of questions about the low genetic variability of vaquita. And if you are like me and you have so many questions, I promise you we are going to dive incredibly deeply into genetics in the fourth part of this entire series. So hold on to your genetics questions. Right, so it's just environmental as in where they live, that's the risk factor for their survival. Yeah, and, and, and when the pollution was not an issue, and uh, either the lack of flow of the Colorado River. This argument has been surviving because it's very good for politicians and some people within the fisheries administration and, and fishermen. This is a favorite sport in Mexico. If you can blame it to the U.S., you have to blame it to the U.S., and probably that's similar in Canada. Actually, we have, <laughs> as they say, a problem between, in between us. So the issue then was when we uh, looked at all the oceanographic data, it was very clear that the upper Gulf of California, it's a very productive area. Right. So despite there's a lack of flow of the Colorado River or a reduced flow of the Colorado River, there are fertilizing mechanisms within the upper Gulf that bring nutrients to the surface and then the whole change of primary productivity, secondary productivity triggers. And we've, vaquitas are healthy. We've never seen emaciated animals. All of them produce calves. All the necropsies show animals that have full stomachs. And there's nothing that indicates that there is lack of food for the animals. Right. But when I say it, it it's an attractive argument for Mexicans, it's because the U.S., uses most of the water of the Colorado River, though many Mexicans forget it's also used in Mexico, uh, not far away from where I am. It's very nice and very patriotic to blame it to the U.S. that because they use most or they divert most of the water of the Colorado River for agriculture and urban use, then it's to blame to the U.S. that Vaquita is declining. So that's uh, something we have 
I mean, it just recently a congressman said that it's, again, the Colorado River and not the bycatch. Right. And it, it helps also because then government and organizations, they don't have to deal with bycatch, which is really hard. I mean, you have to come with alternative fishing gear. You have to develop it to make sure fishermen make a living, etc. But if you blame it to the U.S., then you do nothing. And probably one of the reasons that Vaquita will go extinct is exactly that uh, fisheries authorities have taken very seriously protecting the Vaquita just by doing what they are supposed to do, manage uh, fisheries properly. Because the Totoaba fishery is an illegal fishery, there's a lot more, um, I guess, almost danger in, involved in it because the, the drug cartels are now involved in helping move the swim bladders. So I'm finding like that must be part of the conversation, right? Oh, it's a big issue. Now, yeah. what it's important to make clear is that uh, the population, Vaquita's population has been declining since... Uh, probably the 50s. Right. But when we started working with Vaquita, our first abundance estimate was less than 600 animals. And the population had been declining until 2012, more or less, about 7.3, per year. Wow. So Tuava fisheries started last century in, in, Mex in the upper Gulf. And the communities in the upper Gulf, like San Felipe on the Baja California side and Santa Clara on the Sonora side, it's just exactly where the Gulf of California ends, developed or were founded because fishermen from the south were moving to the north uh, following the Totuaba run, where they go to the upper Gulf and to reproduce there. And so it has been an important fishery, but it was close and it went extinct, basically, the fishery had to close down because commercially it was extinct. And then suddenly there was a resurgence of the Totuaba, this uh, large-scale fishery, mainly fueled by the black markets in China and Hong Kong. And so when this started, it's when really the population collapsed. Uh, and we've lost since uh, 2013, probably, or 15, probably 99% of the population. Oh. We have less than 19 vaquitas now. Our best estimate is nine, but it's really hard to estimate the number of animals when you have so few animals. So the minimum population size is six. The largest might be 20. And I think our kind of point estimate would be around nine animals or 10. So that's uh, what we're facing. And we don't know what triggering exactly this time the demand for swim bladders in China and Hong Kong. But what happened, these brought into the upper Gulf organized crime from China and Mexico, and they worked together to fish and then traffic Totuaba swim bladders to Hong Kong and mainland China. Right. And that's what really is driving Vaquita to extinction, that... It's been almost impossible to control the, the illegal fishery. But basically, if, if Mexico had done its conservation homework on time 30 years ago, then this unexpected single event would have not driven the population to extinction. And that's what, one of the lessons that you were asking me. Right. If you don't do your work on time, then these unexpected events, in this case, the demand for swim bladders drives your population just fast, just as quick as, I mean, just really fast. It's, um, 
that's it's absolutely heartbreaking and I, I don't even think heartbreaking is the right word it's I mean devastating and I can't imagine you know for yourself this is your life's work that you've you've studied an animal that when you started studying it it was already threatened and, and here you've seen this progression um, I was gonna ask and, and maybe it goes back to the genetics you mentioned is what was it that got you interested in, in focusing all of your efforts on vaquita in the first place now it's a it's a kind of a strange story. <laughs> I like strange so, stories. <laughs> so I, I wrote a term paper for my PhD on on vaquita, and it, it wasn't published as a book chapter in a in a strange thing. It, it's the kind of like the U.S. Association of Engineers, or it seems to be it's a well-known uh, association in the U.S. and they have a this periodical publication. So they did one on aquatic conservation for whatever reason engineers got interested in. So uh, my term paper was accepted and it was published. And then at the same time, uh, I was working, my PhD was on humpbacks. Okay. But then a colleague of mine started doing his PhD exactly with the same thing I was doing. And I talked to my advisor at that time in San Diego, Andy Deason. And he said, well, you have that paper on Vaquita. Why don't you just switch to Vaquita at the same time? Bob Ranel was coming to be the head of the Protected Resources Division in Southwest Fisheries Science Center. And he was interested in Vaquita. So that was like a good thing to be there. And when he came, he called me and said, Lorenzo, you have to do something with Vaquita. And then in a newspaper, uh, the Sacramento Bee, and uh, it's a small paper, but it's a very good paper. They, they have won several Pulitzer Prizes, and they had a very good piece on the Gulf of California. And in that article, they called to boycotts, uh, boycott Mexico and embargoes to seafood because Mexico was not doing their job with vaquita, similar to with the tuna dolphin issue that banned Mexico uh, from selling tuna outside uh, to the U.S. and Europe. So all those three things together uh, made me move to Vaquita. I mean, certainly, I mean, as a biologist and a marine mammal biologist, everybody's interested in the Vaquita, I guess. But certainly, to me, it was very close. And Mexico had been a champion of, of marine mammal conservation. I think Mexico had the first uh, large whale sanctuaries for gray whales in the Pacific coast in Baja, and it had played a key role to have uh, elephant seals recover and also Guadalupe four seals. So. I thought, oh, we've done a good job through the years. I better, I bet you we can save Vaquita. And certainly, I thought we had, we were going well. Uh, like in tw in two thousand and eight or nine, we were able to convince the government to come with a program that reduced fishing effort in, in the Upper Gulf, and the population decline slowed down from seven point three, seven point five to. 6.4% in a few years, so we thought we were doing well. Lorenzo said the excitement of slowing down the population decline was short-lived. Once drug cartels got involved, moving Totoaba swim bladders to China and Hong Kong, he says that's when we lost the population. From when he has started working with Wakita to now, he says they've lost 99% of the population. That's a damn sad. I'm so sorry. And... The the two different groups working together, you say that the Chinese crime rings and, and the Mexican fishermen who are, who are collecting these, 
um, when did that kind of start? So that 6.4% that it had been dropped to, when did it start to go back up again? Was that? So that was, uh, I think it was uh, 20, I think it was probably 2011. Okay. I had a call from a fisherman telling me that something was going wrong in the upper Gulf. And, uh, and then I had a call from a few other fishermen and friends in the upper Gulf. And they told me, you know, there's something really strange happening because we're seeing young fishers with tons of money buying new trucks. I mean, these fancy trucks that I'm sure you and I cannot buy one together. <laughs> and, uh, and it seems that someone is paying high prices for Totuaba. At that point, we didn't know it was a swim ladder. It just was Totuaba. Oh, okay. So they were still taking the whole fish. I think they were already taking only the swim bladder, but at that point the, the info was not very very clear. Then by 2013, the government had the presidential commission for the recovery of Makita. And in, in a meeting, we told that to the minister at that time that there was something fishy going around and that he should pay attention. But he said, we should have to solve first Vaquita, then we solve Totuaba. And we tried to explain him, but he was not a very good listener, probably not a very smart man. And he said, no, 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 we have to solve one first and the, uh, the second. And then we told him, I mean, historically, the main fisher that has killed Vaquitas is Totuaba. I mean, you have other fisheries too, but if you don't control Totuaba, doesn't matter if you control the other fisheries, Vaquita will go extinct. Right. Anyway, he didn't pay much attention to us and... And that's where we are. And just to give you an example, how attractive it became to fishers. There's a fisherman that made $116,000 in one fishing day. Oh my gosh. They were paying them for the swim bladder, which is used in traditional medicine in China and in Hong Kong, from 5,000 US dollars a kilo to the one I know, I'm not, I'm, that's what a fisherman told me. I don't know if that's true, but it, he said that the highest price he knew about was 10,000 US dollars. For a kilogram, then it goes to China, and in there is a very good report by the Environmental Investigation Agency, and they reported prices in a auction for Totoa swim bladder up to hundred thousand US dollars. Oh my gosh! Totoa swim bladder became more expensive than cocaine, more expensive than gold, more expensive than anything else. So fishermen were making tons of money. I mean, if do you imagine one hundred sixteen thousand US dollars in one day? Uh, yeah. How much do I? I mean, again, if we put together our incomes, probably we don't make it to the hundred thousand US dollars a year. Yeah. Oh man. So there was so much money and little risk because if they cut you uh, fishing Totuaba, you would get a slap in your hand and say, "Just go away, don't do it again." And we fought very hard to change the law and make or, uh, illegal fishing equivalent to a major felony, organized crime. And the law changed, but it didn't change well enough to stop the illegal fishers from going up. And of course, now it's a, organized crime is controlling the upper Gulf, uh, Tatuaba fishery. And fishermen are telling me that they are also controlling other fisheries by now. It's, uh, so it has... I mean, I never expected this would happen. I never would expect that I would be in this delicate and risky situation. But this is where we are. We try to do our best. Our best hasn't been enough, really. When you're you're talking about your relationship with the with the fishermen, so some of the fishermen who are contacting you and saying we're noticing a change, 
have you found that that relationship with fishermen, I mean, in your whole time of working on Vaquita, have you been able to rely on that relationship or do you find that that has changed over the years as well? No, it, it's been improving actually. It's, it's, uh, so when we started going, there, there is this fisherman which everybody loves, uh, uh, Javier Valverde, we call him El Chino, that's his nickname. And, He's been a fundamental fisher to every biologist that goes to the upper gold and wants to do something that deals with, uh, with the ocean. He helps them. So he helped the first researchers with the Tuaba and he has helped people that does seabirds. And, and we got to him and he helped us. And through him, we met other fishers and we built a very good relation. So many of the fishers have or work with us in different projects. Uh, so we have a project removing gill nets, illegal gill nets. And so we have uh, fishermen participating and then we do the acoustic monitoring of vaquita and we have fishermen helping with us. And when we did vaquita CPR to try to catch vaquitas, we also had fishers uh, helping us. So we have created these uh, about 30 or 40 fishers and they organize themselves in APC fishing, which basically means alternative fishing of the upper Gulf of California. Oh, nice. And I'm part of the board of directors. So, yeah, it's been an, uh, we have a very good relation. If you look at my mobile phone, I think there is no week which I don't have a call from fishers. But as, as things got even worse and worse and worse, fishers that we had of not a very close relation or even fishers that it was not a good relation, it has improved now. But we are all in the same boat. We are victims of these uh terrible situation and uh and we talked to each other and for example we drafted a letter uh, two years ago or a year and a half ago all the fishers and myself uh, asking the government for support and and saying this is the things we have to do step by step and uh, uh two or three days ago we had another call and looking at the options of testing alternative fishing gear the situation of the fishers is Horrible. They are victims of the inefficiency through the years of the Mexican government. I mean, decades of not doing uh, their job. And that's another another lesson that uh, I think we can get from vaquita. And if we don't say vaquita, at least we hope that it helps uh, for other species. But I think from the lessons learned, you have situations or conditions when it's very hard to save a species when you have a governance problem. And I usually say it's a governance problem and it's evil twin corruption. And Mexico is one of the most corrupt countries. I mean, it's improving, no doubt, but still we are. If you look at uh, the list of uh, international transparency, you will see that uh, we are in, in the red zone of uh, least or the most corrupt countries, actually. So, But anyway, what I'm trying to get to is that when in Mexico, illegal fishing, there are different estimates, but some people or some organizations have estimated that even 60% of the national Mexican production comes from illegal fishing. Wow. I mean, that's the highest, might be lower, but it, whatever it is, it's pretty high. That's shockingly high. It's shockingly high. And governance in Mexico, according to the World Bank, uh, five or six years ago, has, was bad, has gone from zero to minus point 12 so it's getting worse Oof. and we know that low governance implies more illegal fishing and so when you have that in one small area like the upper gulf it's very difficult to implement any conservation actions or any 
bycatch or any alternative here development when you have decades of lacking proper fisheries governance and and by governance of fisheries i mean the all, the sum of all the elements that are used to make a proper management of fisheries so you have the legal aspects the social the economic the political the technical if you lose you don't have that it's really hard to implement any conservation actions well and that actually goes to my my next question is i know in some parts of the world, you know, with whale sharks and, and humpback whales, as you mentioned, there's uh, sea turtles, there's tons of species that have benefited because work was done to show that they're, the animals are more valuable alive than dead. And I think the example off the top of my head is that a, a whale shark in its lifetime is worth a million dollars versus, I think it was $10,000 if you were to, to bring it in that one time. I'm wondering, has there been any talk of trying to look at the, the value benefit, the dollar benefit of uh, Vaquita alive? It, it, that's hard because, uh, so let me put you an example how difficult that is with Vaquita. Right. So, so some years ago, we had a call from uh, CNN and they wanted to do a piece about Vaquita. And so we met, I, I flew to Mexico City and we met there with some guy that wanted to do i don't i can remember if he was a cnn reporter or he was freelance and trying to get a piece of, on cnn but anyway the, the idea was to have something on cnn about vaquita and i showed him pictures and all the pictures we had at that time were very few of live animals and far away and most of the let's say the close-ups were of dead vaquitas that had been entangled in gillets right and he asked me i mean do vaquitas do they leap out of the water or I mean, what's, what can they do to attract the public? Because if they don't leap out of the water or, or they don't jump or do what dolphins do, then it's very hard to make any piece for, for, for a news uh, magazine or, or for TV. And he said it's very hard for the American public to watch uh, dead animals. This will not fly. It will, this, this will not be a good story. And I told him, I mean, at that time, can't remember which uh, war was the U.S. involved, and you could see in CNN images of human beings being shot and killed. Right. But having but dead vaquitas was a terrible thing, <laughs> and so we got in a nasty discussion, as you can imagine. But anyway, because vaquita has no, uh, they don't how to call that show off, or they don't have this aerial behavior like humpbacks or gray right. whales or do or dolphins. Then it's and it's very it's one of the most difficult animals to work with. I, I mean, in, in terms of cetaceans or marine mammals, they are really hard. They are very cryptic. They are shy. They don't approach. So it's not easy to bring tourism. And we don't know how tourism would affect vaquita because the population was declining. So we couldn't dare to say, "Oh, let's bring tourism to right. make it worst." I mean, they go away from noises. You can see vaquitas when we're on the boat. They can react to the princess of our boat one kilometer away from our boat. So that was hard. What we tried to do, and we brought several economists together, and that was also interesting. When we started to, and I was trying to get economists to work with us, we couldn't find any economists that wanted to do it because it's isolated region. There's no fresh water. Uh, there are no highways. But it was really isolated area, so they couldn't imagine what to do. But the idea of when I was able to get some economists was how much would it cost to Mexico if Vaquita went extinct 
what would be the international impact? It could be an embargo to fisheries products or boycotts or the, the prestige of Mexico internationally for letting a, an animal go extinct. And there were several uh, estimates. It was millions. And one of the reasons that I got to this and created my marine mammal group here in Ensenada was, as I was telling you at the beginning, when the Sacramento Bee had these uh, boycott and embargoes to Mexico. Yes. One of the things we were motivated to work with to Wakita was to prevent that to happen because in Ensenada we had suffered the tuna dolphin embargo from the U.S. So I didn't that want that to happen again. If you're wondering what the tuna dolphin embargo is, I'm going to try to explain. First of all, you have to understand that dolphins in the ocean do spend time with tuna. They eat similar things and research shows us that they will spend time with each other to reduce the chances they get eaten by predators. Now what happened was, in the 90s, people became aware that dolphins were being caught in fishing nets meant for tuna. That tuna you buy in the can on the shelf that now has a dolphin-safe label, that label never used to be there. In fact, since the fishery had been around, it was estimated that over 6 million dolphins were caught in the purse-sane nets alone. And the purse-sane net was the type of net used to catch tuna. Because people were obviously upset that dolphins were being caught unnecessarily in these nets, in what's known as bycatch, public pressure mounted. And in 1972, the United States created the Marine Mammal Protection Act. Part of that act is to protect marine mammals, and so United States fishermen had to find ways of catching tuna without catching dolphins. They also imposed this on other countries, and the embargo specifically refers to the time that the United States stopped purchasing seafood from Mexico to put pressure on them to create better fishing practices to reduce their dolphin catch. According to the NOAA website, after litigation, the regulations to protect dolphins had been enacted. By 1980, the kill had declined from about 500,000 animals per year to 20,000 dolphins per year. I will also point out that if you do see that Dolphin Safe logo on seafood, it historically has only meant that dolphins were not being caught in those nets, but it doesn't include other species caught as bycatch. It's important reminder to us that when we are choosing to buy seafood, that we do our research and try to make sure we are choosing sustainable seafood wherever possible. And now there is an embargo from the U.S. to fishing products from the upper gulf. And this embargo might extend to other fisheries. And then you have the trilateral agreement. And I just was reading in the newspaper recently that there could be also an impact because of the Akira situation to this trilateral organization. Uh, I mean, free trade agreement. So at the end, this is going to cost Mexico millions or I hope not. But uh, that's where we are. So we don't have like when you say what's the value. And there are many papers also on the value of whales. Uh, the value as part of the ecosystem and how the role to prevent uh, climate change and all those things. Right. And we cannot do that for Vaquita, but we can, We were able to work on this, uh, the impact, uh, the economic impact on Mexico. Anyway, we, we did that and there's a paper we had out and it seems nobody read it. <laughs> I'm glad you kind of say it that way because you're right. You have animals out there like a Vaquita or even harbor porpoises like we get up here, and they aren't the leaping, jumping, singing, obvious, oh my gosh, there it is kind of animals, but even <laughs> even though they're not show-offs, they have just as much right to live yeah. safe in the oceans. So I think that's, that's actually a really fascinating way then to show the cost 
of what what it's going to cost you if they're gone. Yeah, and and we know that from. Uh, I mean, this is one of the costs of corruptions. And again, if you look at some of the other small cetacean species that could be the next uh, species to be at the brink of extinction. And if you look at the list of, or, or the map that shows the most corrupt countries from Transparency International, you can see that many of these species or population that will be facing serious conservation actions or problems in the future are in countries that are similar to Mexico with corruption problems uh, in almost every sense of the regular life. And, and species disappear more quickly in countries with worse governance scores. That seems to be the case. And when corruption pays better than conservation, then it undermines any conservation action. And, right. and worsening that life in here, in the corruption pays so much better than, than conservation. So if you make from 5,000 to 2,000 US dollars for one kilogram, probably less by now, the prices have gone down, but still it's very high. So corruption allows illegal fishing and this will eclipse any legal fishing or the development of alternative fishing gear or the implementation or compensation schemes or anything. Well, that makes sense. So uh, we have to look at those countries and I'm part of a group working in different uh, places on this issue because we start better start thinking what we're going to do with those species and I think we have to look at uh, also very very you ha we have to take the risk we have to be audacious I mean we try to catch vaquitas and bring them to a safe heaven in in sea pens in the upper gulf and uh Sadly, all our efforts, I mean, we had 90 experts from all over the world, veterinarians, economists, uh, uh, you name it, whatever you th people you can imagine you need to catch a vaquita or an animal and bring it into safe heaven and be able to keep it there. I didn't realize the team was that large, 90 different. Oh, it was. Yeah, we had uh, 90 people from nine different countries. Wow. Not all of them at the same time in the upper Gulf, but we, it was a huge, huge effort. And we had to do that. We were seeing how Vaquita was just disappearing. And I think by 2016 and early 2017, we then planned for this fieldwork for the Vaquita Conservation Protection and Recovery, Vaquita CPR. Right. And when we proposed that through the International Committee for the Recovery of Vaquita, and we had big discussions within the committee. But at the end, we were all very clear that the risks we were facing, that vaquitas could die in the process of catching them or transporting them or housing them. We didn't know really how to evaluate that risk. But we thought this risk was uh, greatly overweighted by the certain death of the animals being entangled in illegal gillnet fishing in the wild. So that's kind of the angle now is just really focusing on getting the information out there that if this illegal gillnet fishery was stopped, you have healthy animals that are reproducing and they would be safer without that gillnet fishery. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it, all the genetic work, and we just have a, recently a paper out, uh, you know, a paper that shows why vaquita is not doomed to extinction because of genetic issues. And uh, I say many times that vaquita is a very resourceful animal. If you stop killing vaquitas, they will thrive. They will come back. 
not in our lifetime, but they will come back. So we have to stop killing them. But uh, trying to link this uh, <laughs> to what we were talking before, if, if you are in the same situation in, in your country as with Vaquita, trying to catch animals and bring them into some semi-captivity, it's a potentially valuable, but it's a very complex tool to recover small cetaceans. And you have to start building the capacity for this uh, captive or semi-captive curve years, years before you should be initiated uh, to go there. Because we did, it, we, we needed urgently, and we did it. Uh, and and, uh, and that's another lesson. I mean, we better start looking at what do we need to know to make sure we can save these species. Because we know of terrestrial animals that have been taken from the wild and then made a great program of semi-captivity or captivity and then they were returned to the wild and this is certainly 10,000 is more more complicated with small cetaceans but that's something that has to be seriously considered i'm not saying that's the way forward that you have to do it in every case but it's part of your toolbox for conservation and we have so many other cases in countries with similar problems in Mexico that it's clear you have to look at those options and make serious analysis. And if that's the case, then you should go for it. And if it's not the case, then hope that this we will not go through things like Vaquita. And uh, I mean, we had a call from colleagues that we like very much in Bangladesh and India, and they were telling us a year ago that there were some Chinese arriving to their places looking for fish similar to Totuaba to get their swim ladder. So, so they're already trying to find the next... Trying to find the next one. Is that going to happen? I don't know. We have to learn what happened here with Vaquita. But I, and, and those, I think, are some of the lessons of Vaquita that we really have to take seriously. And if Vaquita goes extinct, let's hope at least this example of Vaquita or this case of Vaquita helps to prevent extinction of other species. And, and yeah, and, uh, so, and so they did a... Their job, and Barb and I have been working together for, I mean, since I was a student, I went to her office to ask her something about genetics and statistics 30 years ago, and now we've been working 30 years together. We're partners in, in crime, but we've talked many times, like, when should we have started to think about this option of catching the animals? And, and, and Barb was saying, well, should we have begun as soon as Gilnet's mortality was recognized that it was not sustainable and that was uh, during the time we started working together a bit later than that 1997 and we knew that the population at that time was less than 600 and a lot of animals were dying or should what we started when we estimated that we have lost 57 percent of the population in 2008 and we had 245 animals left I don't have an answer to that, but I do have very, I'm very clear that you need careful planning and you have to go through a phase conservation interventions as your populations decline from the thousands to the hundreds of individuals. And you have, you need a system where we're working on a paper. We, I don't know if it's where we're going to finish ever, but it's, it's like a street light where you have green, then you have yellow. And when you're in yellow, then you better start working on. Yeah. And then you have red. When you're in red, it's probably too late, which is the the, the case of Bakita. But you need you need to work start working those when you have hundreds of animals, and it's a steep learning curve how to do that. We didn't have the chance to to do it, and I have some of my best friends and mentors. Uh, that they tried monk seals in Hawaii, and the first attempt, the animals died. 
And then, of course, talking to other people, they had a, the, the, the same experience. The first attempts, usually, you lose a lot of animals. Even with Totuaba, I mean, which sounds a bit easier than Bakita, they lost most of the little uh, baby fish when they started trying to produce them in captivity. Yeah. So uh, There's a learning curve. There's a very steep learning curve, and it's a very hard one. Because when the animal dies in your hands, I mean, it's probably the most painful experience I had in my professional life. I want to ask you, um, you mentioned that you're a part of a group working in multiple countries. Well, it, it's a group we, after the Vaquita, after we learned, when, we, when we, the whole tragedy with Vaquita happened, uh, many of us got together and started thinking, so what... what uh, what should we do now? Oh. And, and so we got together, Barb Taylor, Cynthia Smith, who was also one of my closest friends, and we were together leading the, the Vaquita CPR effort. And together with uh, a friend from Germany, uh, Lorenzo van Fersen, we put together a group of marine mammal experts and to look at what IUCN calls the one-plan approach, which basically you combine ex situ and in situ approaches for the conservation of, of mall cetaceans. And, and we got together in Germany and this one-plan approach was developed by the IUCN's uh, conservation planning specialist group. So we look at these ex situ, in situ options and... Uh, and look at which species or populations or subspecies in the world we think they are going to be in need of such a, an approach. So we identified them, we invited the experts to this workshop, and we just finished the report, and it's going to be published uh, pretty soon. Lorenzo explained that working to protect these small cetaceans that were identified at this meeting includes protecting them in ex situ situations, which means the animals would need to be removed from their home in the ocean and cared for, bred, raised in human care, which means that you will actually be working hands-on with folks who are from accredited zoos and aquariums who have hands-on experience working with, caring for, doing medical care for small cetaceans. And he explored some of the challenges that they will have to consider moving forward with that. It's a very controversial issue because there are many people that are, are against catching vaquitas, or I mean, catching uh, anything and bring it to captivity, especially cet small cetaceans. And that we face a lot of uh, people against our approach, and it was not easy on the attacks we received before, especially after the vaquita died. I mean, that was a, a painful. We were accused of everything you can imagine. And the argument for many people was that if we went through that route to catch the animals, then that would jeopardize the in-situ conservation actions. And it didn't happen. And I think the lessons from our Vaquita case is that managers and decision makers must be convinced that to avoid decision, you require developing these action plans, like the one I mentioned, this one action plan. Right that needs to consider both in-situ and ex-situ options when the population are still in the hundreds. And the other thing, uh, I think we tried, but we failed. It's effective communi communication with the communities where you're going to do the, we're going to catch the animal or you're going to do the conservation of the biodiversity. Uh, we brought fishermen to work with us and we had 
people giving chats at schools and bringing students to our facilities. But I, I still think we could have done probably a better job. But as one fisherman said, it's a toxic environment in the upper Gulf because you have all the mafias or, or these organized crimes from China and Mexico. So it's not easy to have a decent uh, conservation meeting with many of the fishers that are even from the outside and they work for organized crime. So having a civilized dialogue is not an easy. And when we started Vaquita, someone said, let them go, let them go extinct with dignity, which I hated <laughs> that argument because... This does not sound dignified, what's happening. It does, it has, it's dignified. And dignified is a human thing. And yeah. it, it, I mean, some people have cancer and for them a dignified death is just to let the cancer do its work and you go away peacefully or not peacefully but you and for others a dignified that is fight till the last minute and try to defeat the damn disease so it's a, a very subjective so uh there's nothing dignified in extinction i guess no i agree well lorenzo i want to thank you so much for your time i want to thank you so much for the work that you have been doing for decades I want to thank you for your commitment to helping this amazing little cetacean. Uh, so thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you for your interest. I really appreciate it. I really want to thank you for joining us for this episode today. Special thank you to Marcus Wernicke for helping me edit these episodes. If you have any questions, you can email me, lauren at porpoise.org. And as always, I hope you have a great day. And go fluke and learn something. Take care, everyone.